Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Okay, so welcome back everybody to this week's episode. Um, We're going to talk about a topic that is probably one of the, say, most taboo, tabooist topics today and throughout human history, um, recorded history. Um, And that is the topic of incest. In fact, the word itself is derived from a Latin word that means impure or unchaste. And while historic records have shown that ancestral relationships have been a way for families for generations to continue lineage and to hold on to assets that they have, such as power, land, and money, there's always been this universal regard that the sexual relationships between parents and children is forbidden. A fear of inbreeding, which can happen from close biological relatives procreating with each other, is a part of that reason. But the truth here is that incest is predominantly an adult taking sexual advantage of a child, and that is flat-out abuse. The psychological impacts of this particular form of abuse are devastating. When a child is conflicted with trying to understand what their relationship is with an older sibling or a parent, and then also engaging in sexual acts before their own brains and bodies are ready for it, personally, I can't even imagine what that world would be like for someone. And so today I have actually with me Nancy Allen, and she is a father-daughter incest survivor and the founder of an organization called Tale of the Bell, an organization that offers coaching and resources to other incest survivors. So welcome to the show today, Nancy. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, to be honest, I don't even know how you start off, you know, a conversation like this. It's so like, I mean, we talk about it being taboo, but it's also um, the, uh, the struggle of Wow. So, you know, what I just want to ask you directly is tell me about how your dad sexually abused you. I mean, does that work? Is that how we get this going? Sure. So, I mean, I can give give you a little bit about my background and how it all started. So, I was raised in a large Italian family and um middle class. My father was a podiatrist, my mother was a nurse practitioner, so um incest can happen anywhere um at any um any demographic. So, just keep that in mind as we talk. But um, I had been always been in a strict environment, um, but as I grew up into my teen years, it became something that turned sexual. So my father started turning to me as he he was one of the first uh, quadruple bypasses done in this Mass General in Massachusetts, oh, wow. and he was home recuperating. And I was, uh, at the time I was about 12, 13 years old, and I was, my mother was working a 3 to 11 shift as a nurse, and I was basically his caregiver. And it, he turned to me as 
um, a, 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 a husband would turn to a wife in that way, although it's not really what it all is about. It's about control. It's about him not being in control of his own life, in control of his own. And in a lot of ways, I really think that my father was a sociopath and it just kind of developed from there. So for, for me, it started when I was um, really 13 and it, he, as he recuperated, it became more of an issue um, in more frequent and um, it, it progressed in terms of the actual activities that, um, you know, more beyond oral sex had turned into um, intercourse. So, um, and I'm going to use terms here because I believe that we, we say, what do we mean? And it, I hope that's not a problem. No, 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 no. So this is an adult show. And so please be um, informative. You know, this isn't about uh, obviously, you know, kind of graphic information for the sake of just being, you know, graphic, but to be actually have a real conversation because it is uncomfortable to talk about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And as you're describing this, I feel like we need to start this episode off with, um, if anybody's listening to this and this is uncomfortable and triggering for them to hear some of this stuff, you know, please, by all means, stop, mm-hmm. take a breath. Cause I actually do get feedback from some of my listeners that sometimes they can't listen to one whole episode at once. They have to stop, kind of reflect on it. So, you know, can we start this off with what do you advise an incest survivor right now that may be listening to this that is starting to feel, you know, a little bit of anxiety building up? What's your recommendation for them as they, as they continue with us on our conversation today? I think this is a self care. Listen to your, your feelings, listen to your 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 body and do what you need to do if you can't listen to this don't listen to this okay. and if you want to do it in pieces do it in pieces um, listen to what you're feeling and don't push yourself is okay what i would recommend good okay so that that's out for everybody that is listening to this and um and you know feeling those levels of discomfort in there because i got that sense as you're talking like wow we probably should have started that off so here we go so yes to answer your question <laughs> nancy please do not do not worry about um how you talk about this talk about it the way that we all need to be talking about it okay yeah i was about 13 years old when my father started having oral sex with me and the first time I can remember, I used to give him back rubs um, because he was in bed all day recuperating. And I remember the first time that he, he called me into his room. And this time it was slightly different because he was naked. And I could hear my brothers and sisters playing outside. And it was just, I knew that something wasn't right. But it became one of these, I didn't have control over what I was being asked to do. And I did. Mm-hmm. Um Immediately after that, it was, I recognized how, I didn't fully recognize exactly what was happening, but I recognized that this was not right, that this was bad, and that I blamed me for it. And I did things from um, anything from really just getting vomiting, getting really sick, to um, at one point he, somewhere in here, he, um, he would ejaculate and he ejaculated into, um, my hair and it was kind of the things that I could never get it clean. And, and I ended up cutting my hair, just literally taking a pair of scissors and cutting my hair kind of thing. So there's that kind of, as a child response, because it's too hard to process exactly what is happening. Um, it, it, it was for the most part, something that occurred during the day while he was recuperating and and then it would happen um, at night he was a podiatrist my mother was a nurse practitioner she would work a 3 to 11 shift and so very frequently I was um, one of the first ones home from school 
and he could pop in at any point in time because he had his own private practice and had kind of irregular hours. So I spent a lot of time as a teenager literally hiding in the attic, literally sitting up. It was a trap door in a closet, literally spent in a dark closet, listening very intently for sounds that were coming into the house. Um, if it was a heavy footstep, I would know that it was him. If it was light or laughter or whatever, I would know that it was my siblings. And then I would kind of come down, run around outside and come back through the houses <laughs> if I had just come home. Um, but if it was him, I was quiet as a mouse up in that attic flashlight would turn off and just wait until somebody else came home. Yeah. So he never, he, he never, when people are around, right? And later on, he would early on, he did not. Okay. Um, so that first year, uh, it tended to be more during the day when it was he and I, and about a year of this going in, um, I spent a lot of time hiding, but at the same point in time, in that time, I, I was one of these kids that, um, compartmentalize things very well. Um, I was a little older, so I was not a child, you know, tiny infant child. I wasn't in the, those preformative years. Um, so I understood at some level, but there was a whole level of secrecy being told, if you share this or you tell somebody, they won't understand, and they will take, you know, the split of the family, it'll be your fault, that kind of thing. And so I I kept, I didn't say anything to anyone. And I was very, I mean, I'm highly intelligent and I was able to channel it into actually studying because my father valued education. And if he saw me studying, he would leave me alone. So that was a piece of it. And the other piece of it was, I, I, it helped me focus. So if I was sitting up in the at, that attic, I was actually doing complex math problems because I'm a math geek. And it would keep my mind focused. And that at the other side, I'm still on guard and still listening for what is happening around me. So I'm always on guard with what is happening around me. When, um, around Just around my 14th birthday, I had a... My, I was supposed to be start working with my father back in his practice, and we would have been alone a lot in between patients during breaks, that kind of thing. And I was terrified of what that could mean and what it might escalate to. So it wasn't a conscious thing, but my behavior started changing, and a teacher picked up on it. And the teacher reported it to the guidance counselor, who I'm like, oh, my God, now what? Because if I say something, what's next? What's going to happen? And, and and guidance counselor, basically I sat in a room and I wouldn't refuse to say anything. So it was a man. And so he referred us to and went from there and ultimately ended up being referred to a therapist. My oldest sister, while my mother was away for a week, basically asked me while I was visiting her, she didn't live with me, asked me why was I seeing a therapist? And I, I wasn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, I actually told her in a note that this is what was going on with me. Next thing I know, she's with me in my, in my uh, next therapy session. And what came out from there was her statement to me was, oh, my God, I, he promised me that he had stopped with me. Oh, no. Oh, wow. So it came out at that point in time that, wait a minute, I'm not special. Wait a minute. What the heck is going on? What, and just an overwhelming overflow of emotions of uh, and now it's completely out of control this is 1978 it's the first year of mandatory reporting in the state of massachusetts where i'm from and therapist is me now meeting with my sister and i basically i'm i'm no control at all 
uh, basically they called in social services. Of course, I was removed from the home with my two younger brother and sister, placed in emergency foster care, and then um, had to go to court. And basically that day in court, I was, um, the day the day that we went to court with Child Protective Services, I was with my sister while she was calling a number of different people um, to see if they would take us for the night because they wouldn't allow us to stay with her because he had a key to her apartment. And they, nobody would take us. So I ended up in an emergency foster care um, for a couple of nights with my twin brother and sister. And then ended up having to go the next day, leaving my brother and sister behind at the the foster home into court. And there in court, there is my my mother, my father, their attorney. Um, on the other side of this, this, the child protective services, the, their, that, my, I guess my advocate, which I had, had, didn't know, um, my older siblings, three of them were in the room. And so there's probably 10, 10 people or so in this room. And I'm being asked, called in to stand before a judge who's sitting way up to basically tell me what my father had done to me with my father sitting right behind me. Of course, I couldn't speak. Of course not. Oh my God. Yeah. So I'm not sure that they do it that way these days, but that was as traumatizing as pretty much anything else. I remember leaving the courtroom, sitting on a bench, waiting um, for to see what happened, this kind of thing. And my father coming out and um, basically apologizing to my mother and not looking at me. So here I am thinking I'm at fault. All right. So the next thing that happens is my father's pulled out of the home. I'm pulled out of the home. He's ordered into therapy. I'm ordered into therapy. So I took from that as a 14-year-old kid that I'm equally at fault. He was right that they were going to separate us and that he was right that I'm at fault as he is. Um, and that's the way things went on. I, I was placed with my oldest sister, who was a year older than my other sister that reported it. And I um, spent the summer with her, with my younger brother and sister as well. And it was... And it was a strange environment. I'm about to start high school. I'm already terrified about starting high school just as any kid would be. But now I've got an added complexity of, am I starting it here with her? I don't even know anyone. Um, It turned out that it didn't happen that way. We were ordered into family um, therapy. But strangely, the family therapy was with um, the therapist that I was working with had a husband and her husband ended up working with my father. So the family, it was just, how do you have a relationship with a therapist that can I trust this person? Can I not? Therapy didn't last long. And um, I was given back to my parents in terms of uh, physical custody within about four months, three months. Okay. So your dad didn't do jail time. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm sitting here going, they recommended therapy, but not like criminal prosecution. Correct. So keep in mind, my father's a doctor. He he admitted it openly in court. He apologized, and they thought that he was curable. He did no he did no anything other than being pulled from the home like I was, and being ordered into into therapy like I was. That was it. So within I was returned to the home and and to their physical custody, but the state retained custody for probably another nine months. In, within six months of being re, being returned home, I my father got me pregnant, and it was very public because it came out on a school field trip into Washington D.C. with my an old uh, teacher, 
And I was, I was having terrible um, pains and was taken to the emergency room there. And that's where they just, they basically said that I was pregnant and was likely um, losing uh, the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So um, at that point in time, um, clearly my mother (laughs) knew, clearly the whole family knew. And my mother basically, my father said it wasn't him. My father said that I was, must've been sleeping around. He called me a fucking whore. And um, my mother basically let it go from there. So I never said anything again. And I, at one point in time in there, I remember going to a priest because I was raised Catholic. I remember confession, confession. And there again, being given my penance of whatever, however many Hail Marys, Hail Marys and uh, uh, our fathers or whatever. Um, so again, it's reinforcing it's my fault. I had my grandmother, his mother, basically tell me that he's sick just don't entice him. Again, my fault. Your fault, yeah. Um, so it was reinforced in a lot of places. And so I lived with believing that it was my fault. Um, and I just figured how to compartmentalize things. Um, it continued actually into my early 20s. And I, uh, I was married still at that point in time. And it, uh, it, I would not have said anything simply because I had met my, ultimately, my husband when I was 15 years old. He was the only boy I ever dated. We ended up getting married at 20. And um, I was terrified that I would, he would be taken away from me if in put into something else. So I dealt with compartmentalizing, as, um, and I ended up putting myself through college. And um, But I was very, very much an overachiever because I needed, I wasn't good enough. I needed to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, uh, so many things. First of all, I'm going to admit that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm speechless for so many things. I'm speechless for your, first of all, your bravery at being able to share something as traumatic as that. I'm speechless of the way that the adults around you failed you miserably Mm -hmm. for so long. I'm just, you know, I, I mean, it's just unbelievable to me right now. Um, and I just, God, I, I'm like, I'm so angry for you. I'm so like, I want to cry for you right now. I know that you have like, you know, you're on a journey out of all of this, but, you know, talking about this and as frank mm-hmm. as it, you've done that, I mean, the only words that I have, I think are just like, holy shit, like, holy shit, everything happened, everything went wrong. And you got left with believing that at the end of all of this, that somehow you were accountable for this and that you were to blame for this. And that is just, that is devastating. Like that's devastating that that's the life that you had to continue to, to move on from. Now, I believe in your story, you said, because of this, of dealing with all of this, um, you had inpatient psychiatric help to try to like sort through this, you know, several times. Yep. Uh, duh. <laughs> you know, of course that would be. You know. <laughs> So I had gone to outpatient therapy a couple of times. I was suicidal in my late teens and again, no shit. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then again, when I was in college and I, I sought therapy both times and it just wasn't helpful because it was too close and it was too, I mean, I'm under my parents' health insurance. So they know it's like, there's always this fear of being pulled again, of being removed of, and, and I'm not in control. Control is a big deal for me. <laughs> <laughs> I I need to know, you know, ducks have to be in a row and I need to know where what's happening. Um even now, um and I'm 55 now. Mm-hmm. Um 
but I we, that went on into my 20s and I mean there's more to this story in the sense that my father as he knew that he was going to get away with things he became much more um a psychotic I, that's the only word that I can use is psychotic and he used his medical knowledge against me so that he physically did not leave evidence and um I mean he was torturing me sexually um and in a couple of instances in there he um, he, he gave me to some of his associates. So th- there's this kind of thing happening I- in the background as well. And that's really when I became suicidal and just didn't see a way out. Um, I ended up going to college and I went to college in another and um, I was very fortunate. Again, um, I channeling, I, the way I channeled was to channel it into school and to focusing and largely because it would take my mind away from everything else. And I learned how to do that, which was a good thing for me because I became someone that the teachers kind of, you know, I was really highly ranked and I ended up with scholarships and, and did the same thing through college. I did a five-year program in two and a half years in college and I worked full-time. I mean, I was just constantly compartmentalizing and just kind of focusing because I knew that the only way out was to be financially independent and get out. And that's what I ended up doing. I got married when I was just turned 21 and kind of went off from there. Yeah. I didn't really seek therapy after that for a while. And at, when I was 28, my father died. Um, and the night of his, of his death, of the, um, he was, he, he had always had a heart condition and that night before he died, he had called me because he was going in for another quadruple bypass. And he called me and he basically said on the phone to me, I'm sorry, can you forgive me? And I couldn't speak to him. I literally handled the phone to my husband and I walked away. And it was one of these, how dare you? I just, I couldn't respond at all. The next day he died. And I really spiraled. I, it, it was like the floodgates opened and I, I had no idea what was happening at this point. I, where previously I had been able to channel it and, and hold it back and kind of focus on things. I couldn't do anything. I was having nightmares. Like I, I you know, I was having flashbacks. I was being triggered all the time. And about within two weeks, I was so bad. I can remember sitting at, um, on the couch where my husband had taken out our two young sons. They were one and three at the time. And he had taken them out because he was this, really the stay-at-home parent. And I'm sitting there with a bottle of pills. And I was like, I, I can't do this to them. I, I leave them because they deserve better than I had. And as a result of that, I ended up making some phone calls and I called an emergency number. They brought me right in. And then they basically I ended up in the emergency room at an acute psychiatric hospital. And I ended up staying there for about three weeks. And it was the first time really speaking and telling them to tell me, me to tell them what had truly happened. What did he do? And it, what was amazing here is that for the first time in my life, my mother stood up and supported me. She came up from Maryland where she was living, and so he was dead. And so this is her basically, me basically opening up to her 
really calling her on the spot to um, what, why didn't you support me? Why didn't you believe me? Why weren't you there for me? And basically it came out as that she was probably abused herself and right. that she um, just didn't have the cap- capacity to. You know? mm-hmm. um, ultimately, she and I became friends. I mean, she was never a mother in a sense, but she became a grandmother to my children. And we became friends, and she actually lived with me until she died years later. Um, but anyway, in that process, I ended up going through probably about two years. Um, I came out of the hospital, tried to go back to work, which was an amazing story in and of itself. It was the first time I ever was accepted because I had a boss who I needed support. I was had a startle response. I couldn't have people coming up to me. I, if I could, somebody standing in the doorway watching me was I, I couldn't handle it. So I had a boss who basically said to me, what do you need? And let me help you. And so we got all the men in the department together and sat down together. And basically I told them in high levels what was going on. And my boss was so supportive to the point where he was basically saying, if you can't read what you need to read, then you hand it to me and I will read it and we'll go from there. Um, Just an amazing, amazing situation. And that was the first time ever that it was like, this is okay. I was so afraid that I was to be rejected or that now it's going to interfere with my professional life and all of this. And that was the exact opposite of what happened. Wow. That right there is an amazing thing. Like I'm actually tearing up. I mean, honestly about that too, for you to be able to receive that kind of warmth and support from people, um, you know, about to, to be able to accommodate and understand, you know, and to give you some safety you know, for yeah. you to be able to do that. That's it's pretty impressive and pretty incredible. So, uh, wow. I, you know, uh, one of the questions that comes in and I'm, I, you know, I ask this because I don't want it to, and I don't want it to sound insensitive and I don't want it to sound mm-hmm. uh, shamey, but it's kind of like the direct question that people think and wonder to themselves, but are afraid to ask. And that's not me, but you know, you go and you, out your father for the abuse that you've been suffering. Your sister stands up with you and does the same thing and it's out there and people know about it. And yet it continues for many years after that. How does that happen? And I, I'm not saying, and I, like I said, this question isn't as, how did you not know better? How did you not get out of it? I'm not directing it at you. I just want people to understand how does that happen? Well, what, what goes on? Because I've addressed abusive situations myself, other people, where when somebody says, why did you let it go on so long? Fuck, I I don't know. You know, in the moment, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. In this situation, have you been able to understand, you know, how it would, how, even when you know it's wrong, even though it feels terrible, how did it go on for so many more years? So there's a whole family dynamic happening here, right? I mean, I, keep in mind, I have seven brothers and sisters. So, and at that time, my, grand, my, my grandmothers were alive. My grandfather wasn't. But um, so this is, for this to happen in the first place, the family has to have turned inward anyway. Um, so very much, there's, there's very few friends outside of the home. There's, there's a lot of secrecy happening here. There's... Uh, again, my father was a doctor, and he was protected by other doctors. Um, my mother protected him. My grandmother protected him. And, and basically, I was told that if I said anything, that we could be financially in trouble, 
because he would then potentially lose his practice. He would then have a reputation issue. And then as a result of all of that, he would be, then what? We would be out on the streets. We would be whatever. So don't say anything because then it will be your fault that with a family ends up in trouble. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that it wasn't known. And even in that time period, I did tell a couple of people. I told a priest. Mm -hmm. I I told the the teacher knew. And nobody did anything. So I'm again, it's consistently reinforced that it's my fault or partly my fault. Or you have so, control. You have and control. I already been yeah. Po- yeah. And that I was I was also um pulled mm-hmm. right once. To me, being pulled was worse than the abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that all those dynamics happening. Mm-hmm. Um but but it's also about a lot of shame involved because I believe it's my fault. This whole thing is uh, it, this. I'm bad. You know, I, I shame is about, I am not a worthy person. Mm-hmm. I am not lovable. I So you push that to, you know, I found a place that I was okay. And that was in school and then later at work. And that's where I channeled. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is a common thing. You know, we have talked about this on the show and again with other abuse survivors, you know, one is the victim shaming that comes from the outside. Um, you know, the, why would you let that go on? That's why I wanted to make sure that my question to you did not feel that, that that's how I was asking that because I've had yeah, that yeah, question yeah. directed at me. Like, why would you stay? Why would you go on? And then when you sit there and go, I don't know why it only reinforces your own sense of shame that um, you, again, are air quotes for people that are listening, allowing it to happen, which is not the case. We're not allowing ourselves to be abused. We're being manipulated. We're being taken advantage of. We're being assaulted by somebody else. Um, Our complicity doesn't mean we're allowing it to happen and we have some accountability. It means that there are factors beyond our control emotionally that, um, that are buttons being pushed by a skilled psychotic abuser that's, you know, and on the outside looks as if we're just letting it all happen. So, so I wanted to make sure that um, we got to talk about that because that would be, that's a question. A lot of people that have no idea and have no experience with, you know, something as severe as what you've gone through or even just emotional abuse, which is still severe in its own nature. Yeah. They look around and go, I just, I don't get it. Well, you know, I always tell people, thank God you don't fucking get it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because- absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think the one other thing that you need to think about here is, when you talk about rape or you talk about some other some other abuse, right, um, they tend to be or they can be one-off events. They're not necessarily multiple, multiple. As an incest survivor, at least in, at the extreme where I am, it's a way of life. It is what I know. It is my childhood. So that's like trying to say how do you totally just – trash everything from your, your life. How do you move and say, okay, I'm going to start over. I'm going to, we, it's hard enough to do that as an adult. How do you do that as a kid? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's the grooming that goes along with it and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So I, you know, there are a couple of things that I really did want to talk into. And I think that you've hit on it because one of the things that I wanted to, you know, understand is, is that this, you know, what is this common feeling that incest survivors actually seem to share with all of the ones that you've actually worked with? And I mean, you've mentioned shame and embarrassment or guilt. You know, I, I sense that that mm-hmm. would be it because that's kind of common with all abuse survivors. But, um, you know, is there, is there a, a theme that when, um, uh, with incest that's different from that? Or is it really that's the biggest challenge? 
I think there's probably three of them. I think shame is probably the biggest one because it's a sense of I'm not worthy, I'm bad, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think the second one I would probably say is it's my fault. There's some level of, you know, that, that I wouldn't call it guilt, but there is some level of fault involved here or belief in that false falsehood, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think the third one here is trust, right? There's this whole level of how do you trust anyone? Um, in any kind of a relationship so that you're constantly, I mean, PTSD is a big thing for, particularly for incest survivors. And um, that level of trust is, it, it, it never goes away. I think the other thing that people don't realize is that this is not something that you heal from. Mm-hmm. This is not a get over it. This is not, no matter how much therapy you have, your life changes. I mean, you, you move past the recovery phase, which is, you know, when my father died, that's what I was in, the recovery phase. But you, it's something that will impact you for the rest of your life. And you'll relook at it over the course of your life because your life circumstances change. So like when I got, uh, had my first children, you know, childbirth for me was, what the heck is this? You know, because it's triggering, yeah. right? That kind of physical body response. Same thing, when my children got to be the age that I was abused. Now I see it as, wait a minute, this is a 13, 14-year-old kid. My son is not going to be able to push up and, and, you know, really do something to me or defy me or whatever. How would I have expected myself to be able to do that? So there's a different level of understanding because you see it through that that type of thing. And mm-hmm. then again, later when my husband died, same type of thing. Um, it, you know, I was 49 years old at that point when my husband died. And again, I was brought back down to, um, back to nightmares. So I think this is something that as you go through life, you experience it and you, because it becomes something that you integrate. It is not something that you heal from. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, one broken mom, you know, one of the things uh, like you, I'm a, I'm a complete nerd. So, you know, I don't just tackle the psychology, but really it's, uh, you know, what changed for me and my understanding of my whole world, my whole life and, you know, past experiences and where my future is, is the, um, is the study of neuroscience and what the, Mm -hmm. um, and how brain architecture is formed. And so when you take something like what you just experienced, while your brain is learning, it's wiring and it's assembling, you know, that it's going on. Of course, this is something you don't just get over. You know, unfortunately, you inherited, you know, an entire system and an operating system that was fouled up by this experience. And, you know, imagine that, um, you know, we all have, you know, different levels of what that, you know, faulty wiring is. And some of it we can correct, but for the most part, which most people, you know, get to this realization is, is I can't change my responses. I can't change my triggers. I can work to neutralize them a little bit. I can work to not let them Mm -hmm. take over me, you know, on a day-to-day basis and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and go on autopilot. And it's a very emotionally, um, you know, almost fatiguing and exhausting days when what you're doing is, man, mm-hmm. I feel like I've gotten triggered 10 times by different experiences. And all I've done is try to calm myself back down and re-regulate and do that because before we just kind of, you know, roll on autopilot. So, you know, there is no, uh, you know, question in my mind, or I think anybody else that's listening to understand that, uh, yeah, this isn't, this isn't a get over it. But now we used to believe you could, 
right? Like before we knew exactly how in, ingrained, you know, this, um, again, I, you know, brain architecture really is. It was like, well, if we just do therapy, this is something you just manage and roll. And that also lends shame, right? The fact that you can't recover yes. from it is another form of shame that some people think that they have, like, I can't get over this. What, so I must still be What's wrong with at me? fault, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, so you, um, you know, I wanted to ask this question also about this because this is because of so it's so taboo because it's so sensitive. It's not just like you talked about, like a rape or an assault from a stranger um, or even the neighbor or whatever. This is like probably one of the deepest violations like in, in nature, like, you know, incest doesn't really occur in other species. You know, um, it's not something, you know, there's a couple of little bugs or whatever, you know, I did some research on this because again, I, you know, when I go in, I go in. Um, and so this isn't, this is an aberration. It's a genuine aberration in, in mother nature out there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, do you have to be able to, in your opinion, in the work that you've done here, do you have to be able to admit this that this happened to you, to anybody in your life in order to be able to heal, to move forward from it? Or can you, can you work on the healing and the integration and the, and the adaptions that you have to take and still keep that to yourself? Because I feel like some people will never take the first step if it involves having to tell another person about this, you know, or, or feeling like they can't do this because it would require them telling their spouse or, you know, anybody else in their life. I mean, I think that a therapist obviously might be, you know, definite you have to, but do you have to tell anybody else beyond that? Or do you think that people can actually still be able to move and, and, and find a life for themselves with that secret? I think one of the things that when a survivor takes back control, part of the control that they're taking back is over their own experience and their own story. So who they share with when they share is completely up to them in any, at any point in time. There are different ways to heal and a healing journey is different from person to person to person. Nobody's is the same. I, there are, I think you need to get your story out. I think you need to understand what happened and to be able to really look at it from an adult's eye perspective, not from a child's expected, right? Mm -hmm. So that there are ways to do that. I mean, you could learn, you could go learn how to, the brain works and, and, you know, learn neuroscience and then understand that, oh, okay, maybe that, that's what happened and that's why that was that. But I think that for whatever way, you need to get to an understanding of what is actually happening physically with the brain, emotionally, and, um, and, and to be able to see it beyond that childhood view, but from an adult lens. That then enables you to forgive yourself. And that forgiveness is what then leads you to be able to move on. Because when you stop blaming yourself and you start then and you let go of that shame and understand that that shame is not on you, that's society's shame, that's his shame or her shame, it's not yours at all. But I think that it takes that understanding and then that forgiveness. That understanding, for the most part, is likely going to come from therapy um, because it's such an intense subject matter. Now, most people... My understanding is that about a third of the of survivors will disclose when they're children. Another one-third will disclose with a median age in their 50s. So this is something that people carry for years and years and years and years. Wow. 
And then there's another third that will never disclose. Yeah. So keep in mind that this, people carry this and it's the worst thing in the world to have to carry because they're not really living a fulfilling, happy life because this, there's this dark secret sitting with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I'm glad you kind of brought in some numbers in there. Cause like I said, I just, um, you know, fulfilling lives are what you and I both want It's what you and I mm-hmm. both do is to be able to give people that. And, um, and if somebody is, you know, feeling like they, that the only way to do it is to be as, as frank and transparent as you are, that that's how you heal from something like this. I wanted to make sure that some people know that that's not necessarily the case, but you do need to be able to, um, uh, you know, is this something that you self help your way through, you know, in your experience with this? I mean, you offer resources and services as a coach for people that are incest survivors. Uh, you know, this feels to me and I'm not, you know, making a judgment, but it feels to me like this is such a severe violation that self help is probably a great place to start, but ultimately not really the, the end game in terms of being able to improve your life and and to be able to heal from this substantially. Right. I think this is a therapy situation and it's a therapy situation. And even, even as a coach, right. Mm -hmm. I will not work with, with folks who have not been through therapy because I believe that they have to get to a point where being able to be coached is, is different than being going through therapy because I don't take people back. And I really think that you need to go back and understand it. Mm -hmm. Right. I focus on where are you today and what's happening. Right. Right. Now, do you actually, with your practice, do you actually work with men? Because I know, like I said, you know, you and I off camera before the the episode actually started. And also this happens sometimes is that um, when, when my show is me talking with another woman, you know, our filter, you know, kind of goes in and we think that this is just a a woman problem. And we're talking about father daughter incest, which I believe they had said was like one of the largest reported forms of incest, but they actually Mm -hmm. think that maybe older sibling, younger sibling is maybe much more, much more dominant. So men, you know, can be incest survivors or victims as well. And so do you work with several men as well? So I have not worked with men. That's not to say that I wouldn't work with men, Mm -hmm. but I have not had men that approached me for, for that type of support. However, I do have a podcast. In that podcast, I have had a male survivor come on and, and talk. And when we talk about this, we're still not necessarily talking, you know, opposite sex. It, this can be mother to daughter. This can be father to son. This can be brother to brother, sister to brother, brother to sister. It's a question of control and, and that disparity in age that is really the driving factors. So, yeah, it's not a, um, it, a gender-specific thing. It's not, a demo, it's not another demographic-specific thing. It happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So let's, let's start to go into um, Tale of the Bell and the work that you do today mm-hmm. with this, um, because it's obvious, not only have you invested a lot of time in yourself um, and your, your mm-hmm. openness is inspiring here, how do you help other incest survivors? So for anybody that's actually listening to the show or the show's been shared with somebody in there, you know, what is it that they, they get with working f- with you? Because you are a certified life coach. Um, and you have mm-hmm. like, you know, an array of things that you're able to help people with. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest things a survivor is the isolation that happens. It's the secrecy, it's the shame. And it wasn't until I was 46 years old when I met another incest survivor that I absolutely felt understood. 
I had been loved. I mean, I had an amazing marriage. I had, you know, four children, two of which we adopted and two of which were biological. And I had, my husband was an extremely gentle, generous man who, um, he was very loving, empathetic. You know, he was my rock. He was my safe place. But I never, he never understood. And it took another incest survivor to understand, to truly get it and get me, that I didn't feel different. So when my husband died when I was 49 years old, it, my, my childhood demons came back after 20 years of being very much in a good place and thriving, really thriving, um, enjoying life, giving back. And in those moments, I literally was back having nightmares. I went back into therapy and because I had lost my safe place. And once again, I had to learn that I kept myself safe. He was just my mirror. But that was something that I had to learn. Um, so in that regard, as I healed from that, the reality of what I found was 20-something years later, there were still no resources available to just talk. I mean, beyond therapy, there was no resources available. I went to a life after loss group for, for widows and widowers, and they were very helpful, but they didn't understand that I had, I also had young children. My children were 14 years old when he died. So I had that dynamic, but he had also committed suicide. So I had a suicide dynamic in there oh, wow. and I'm an incest survivor. There's like no resources available at all to talk to someone who could truly gets it. And so that's when I decided that if, if not me, who, and if not now, when, and it enough is enough. So I waited until my, I had really kind of worked through my husband's death, that my children were okay. And two years ago, I went back into school and became a life coach and really a focusing on helping survivors in a sense of community, survivor to survivor in group settings to the most part, but really to try and get to that level that somebody else gets this, that somebody else you can understand and get practical tips that if you're having sex and you start dissociating, what are some things that you can do? That if you are, you know, you're sitting with somebody you love that you're in an intimate relationship with and that they want to move on and have sex and you're not quite ready and you can't express that, what do you do? So practical tips are a big deal about what I kind of foster for because it's like, think of it as talking to your best friend, but these are friends that understand because they've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And I had made a comment earlier today. I was talking with somebody else too about the fact that, um, you know, it really is important that when you are working through a lot of things in life and you're growing and you're, and you're investing in your time to grow and heal from a lot of stuff to start to really, um, take eye on who you're taking advice from, <laughs> you know? And so I have actually found like, I, you know, I now limit my advice to come from people that are also working on their own stuff, you know, because of that reason right there. You know, we have a, we have a perspective. We know how to call ourselves out when we need to, we know how to have open conversations. We learn a lot about how to be reflective and not be critical of ourselves. I mean, it's an ongoing process, um, but uh, definitely it's, it's helpful for communities um, of understanding to be able to find each other, which is why, uh, you know, having you here and talking about this as you do, um, I don't know, I don't, 
poll my listeners. And like I said, there's probably several that haven't admitted or don't know, or they know somebody that may be struggling with their incest, mm-hmm. you know, history and trying to find out how to be able to find somebody that can actually help them and, and guide them through that. And so I appreciate yeah. that you're, that you do what you do. Um, like I said, I, at the beginning of this, you know, 50 minutes ago, I just, my, I, I can't, I can't even describe this grief I felt for little you. Um, but definitely, mm-hmm. you know, the adult version of you, Nancy is incredible. Like, I mean, just, you know, this Thank has been, I've had more goosebumps in this interview than I honestly have done. I've had like in the year and a half that I've been doing the show because it's been inspiring to hear you and what you've done and how you've come through all of this as devastating as it has been. And so thank you so much for, um, for taking the time to, to, to talk with me. Now I want to ask one last question though, um, for somebody who's sitting here listening to the show and they've been turning it off and on for, you know, maybe a couple of hours because it's been mm-hmm. gripping. What is really the first step? Somebody who's been holding on to a secret like this, that might be in their fifties, like you said, um, and they, and they do want to do something and they don't want to take this any longer with them. What would you tell them to do that would be step number one? So I guess the first thing that I would say is there's nothing special about me. If I can, you can, right? There is hope and that you're not alone. There's a lot more people out there than you would believe. So the first step I would say is look for a trauma-informed therapist, and they really need to be somebody trauma-informed. And when you're looking don't settle for just anyone and do some interviews. If you don't fit with that person, fire them, go get someone else. You would do that with a contractor. This is much more important than that. So interview therapists, you know, most will give you for, you know, 30 minutes or whatever free and just talk about, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I need to discuss. What you, are you familiar with this? Can you help me? And if they don't feel right, move on because don't say don't do it it's okay because not everybody is right for the set, the same person. Right. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great advice. I tell everybody, it's like, you know, it's okay to treat your therapist like a pair of shoes. It needs to fit in order for it to do, because then you get a really meaningful relationship with somebody that you feel so much more comfortable with sharing some of the, you know, some of the stuff that you have to go back in because digging through your past is painful. It's not easy to do that, but you, you know, you're becoming a, um, you know, an archaeologist so that you can understand, you know, what the future is moving forward. So, yeah. well, Nancy, I, the second thing that I would oh, go ahead, before I move on, the second thing that I would, would say in here is make sure that you have support because this is going to be very difficult. It is worthwhile doing. It is amazing when you move on to the other side, but you shouldn't have to go through this alone. So make sure you have support. Okay. That's great. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you again for your time and your candor to do this and, and taking the time, you know, almost an hour out of your morning to talk to me about this. Um, everybody, I'm going to have uh, links to her website in the podcast notes so that you can get to it, but it's taleofthebell.com. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And T-A-I-L, the tail end of the bell curve. Right, right. Yeah. And she's got a really great description of where that name comes from. So if you want to hear the story, go check out the website and you can read um, about what she does and you offer group sessions as well as individual coaching sessions. And so there's a variety of of resources also on your website for people that are starting to explore, you know, wanting to get all this healing. And so all the links to all that stuff will be in the podcast notes. And so thank you again, Nancy, for, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Cool. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. 
You can find podcast notes on my website at aminiquiricone.com, and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kirkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.